right, good morning. Grab your Bible, find Romans chapter 3. And while you're doing that, we need to talk about October. So it is Reformation Month, and we are reading the Bible. So every October we celebrate, um, we don't really celebrate Martin Luther, we celebrate the Reformation, which led to the translation of the Bible into vernacular languages, which led to us being saved. So we celebrate the fact that we have access to God's Word. And we do that every October primarily by setting a challenge to read as much of the Scripture as we can um, as a church family. So we read a chapter, we report it. We read a chapter, we report it. And so far, we have read and reported a little over 11,000 chapters. So the first year we ever did it, the goal was 4,000. So we're working on three times that goal, and we are perfectly on track to meet last year's goal. We're, we're a pretty good bit behind meeting this year's goal. So what that means is everyone needs to take your current reading plan and double it. And find three or four more people that aren't already doing it and get them to do the same plan you have now doubled. You with me? I don't get a lot of excitement in the room now. I'm hearing this. <laughs> I'm hearing some, oh, no, what happens when we don't make our goal? Just telling you, here's what's going to happen if we don't make our goal. On November 3rd, no, no, did you just say that? No, no, you keep your mouth quiet. All right. (laughs) On November 3rd, which is um, two weeks from today, when we celebrate our final Reformation month, day, slash, month, whatever, celebration, um, what we will do is we will gather together and read Psalm 150, however many times it takes, as a group, to make up the difference. See, now what I've done is no one's coming to church on November 3rd. <laughs> and I'm going to judge you for it. Okay, well, there's a verse about that. So I, I won't. All right, just thinking aside, guys, we're doing great. Um, even if we don't meet our goal of 30,000 chapters, we've read almost 12,000 chapters in the church. I mean, that's insane. I mean, think about the actual, but that's 10 times, over 10 times through the whole Bible as a group, if you divide that out, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. If you talk about New Testament, 260 chapters, that goes in there a bunch more times. Is that what, 40? Somebody's quick at math. I don't know. It's something. It's a bunch. So we've read a lot of Bible. I get really excited every October because we spend so much time in the Word. Keep it up. Keep reading. If you haven't participated, we, we made a website just for reporting. So go to ReformationMonth.com, and you can make an account. You can report your reading. You can share that. Get other people to read. And we're going to have a good time, no matter what we do, reading the Word and celebrating the fact that we have access to the Bible. So for the month of October, we have been discussing some of the theology that came out of the Reformation. And this theology, for the most part, is universal among all Protestants. Unless you've protested so far you left Christianity, which some cults have done, Um, if you're still in the what we would call the evangelical Protestant circle, um, the five solas would be a foundational piece of the theology of your entire system. And so the first one we talked about of the five was sola scriptura. They're all in Latin just because Latin was the big language they did academics in back in the day. But sola scriptura in English is what? Scripture alone. Now, we always suggest, you know, we have five things and they're all alone, so how are they really alone? Because each of the alones are the only answer to a particular question. 
And so the idea of sola scriptura is what has the authority to tell us what proper theology is? What has the authority to tell me what to believe? What has the authority to guide my life? And at the end of the day, there is only one answer to that question. Well, the answer is God, but the way he gives us that authority is through his word. And so the scripture is the only authority. It's not councils. It's not systems. Those things aren't necessarily bad or wrong, but they do not have the authority that God's word has. And we submit ourselves to God's word, not to the church, certainly not to the preacher. I could get up here and I could preach some pretty crazy doctrine. And how would you know if what I was saying was true? Because you can hold up a copy of of your your own Bible and read it yourself. That's the foundational principle of sola scriptura. We can read the Bible. It's not just me telling you what it says. You can read it with me. You can study it. We can work through it together and all as a group submit ourselves to God's word. Then the second one was sola gratia. Also sounds fancy, but in English it's what? Grace alone. So grace alone answers the question, why would God save you? Because we have a tendency to think, well, God would save me because I'm, and anything you fill in the blank there, um, it's no longer grace. You have in some way merited or at least positionally merited your salvation. It's because of the family I grew up in or the church I go to or the works I have done or the system I've, no, it's grace alone. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and saw that the only thing we brought to the table when it came to salvation was the need for salvation. We bring sin to the table. Paul gave us three, or three verses in that paragraph about how, how much we sin and deserve God's wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgress, transgressions. He raised us up with Christ seated us with him in the heavenly places by grace you have been saved. Emphasizing, you didn't do something to position yourself, to make you earn this. It's not how that works. So today, we're talking about sola fide. What's that one stand for in English? Faith alone. So what is it, what's the question that we're asking when we deal with faith alone? And it's how do I get justify. That word justify, we don't use the word that much outside of a Christian setting, but we use the concept of it very, very regularly. And so we have this built-in tendency to try to get justified. Sorry guys, I misplaced my sermon notes. They were here a second ago. We can work through this either way, I just won't be able to fill in the blanks because I don't know what they are. Did anybody see me walk up here with paper? It's sitting right, no, that's uh, Joe. That's Wednesday night. You know what? We'll just make it work. I'll just use a bulletin. I actually had printed notes, but, you know, let's, I'll guess what the blanks are. We'll, we'll go with it. You know, that's fine. <laughs> All right, here we go. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 3. I really don't know what I did with that. This is amazing. Blowing my mind. Okay. I'd say it was a magic trick, but Net found them. They were, they were in Romans chapter 3. Go figure. It's one of those days, isn't it? Okay. We'll work with it. <laughs> so justification. Let's talk about the idea of justification. We don't usually use the word justification, even though we use the idea of justification regularly in our culture. Now, have you ever been in a fight with anyone at all, especially maybe a spouse? You ever had an argument with your spouse? If you haven't, I do marriage counseling. We need to work through your communication. All right. So there's, there's arguments that happen. You have a default tendency when you get into a disagreement 
is, or at least if you're like me, I assume everyone's like me, that's just how we all think, right? Um, you start thinking through all the reasons that who's right? You, right? You're not thinking through all the reasons your spouse is right. If that's what you were thinking, where would the argument be? It wouldn't be an argument. Just, well, here's all the reasons my wife is right. All right, well, my wife would probably love me to think that way, but that's not what I'm doing. It's not what she's doing. It's not what you're doing. It's not what either of you are doing. You're thinking through all the reasons that you're in the right in the scenario, but then you got to work a little more complicated because it's not just the thing you argued about. It's the way you argued about it and the grumpiness with which you argued about it, and now you have to start justifying that even the attitude you had was right because of blank, 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 blank. Does that make sense? That's justification. So we do it in internal relationships. We do it, we do it in the workplace. We want to justify our pay, maybe justify our worthiness to have this job, justify in, in sports. I had a scenario um, yesterday where I got uh, uh, manipulated. No, okay. I, I was invited to run with, with some guys, and uh, I'm, I'm the fat guy in the circle. You know, there's, there's four people involved. Three of them are skinny and healthy and, like, run all the time. And then there was me in the, in the, in the group, and they, they wanted me to run with them. And so they, here's what they did, guys. They put me out front and made me keep the pace. Do you feel how cruel that is? Just let that sink in. Okay. But here's what happens. Now in my brain, I'm like, I have to justify my existence, right? I don't want to be that guy that runs, keeps the pace for 10 seconds, and then, you know, oh, sorry, guys, I'm done. So, so I'm out there running, trying to justify myself. And what they don't know is I felt like I should have quit about 20 minutes before I actually quit. You know what I'm talking about? So today, it was a big deal to, to actually get high enough to sit on this stool. My legs, it's unbelievable. But we have this internal justification system. We're trying to justify ourselves. Now, we can talk about a billion different ways we do it in life. We also have a sense in which we always try to do it before God. We do it culturally. The big thing in our culture these days is karma. Um, it's a, it's a pre pre prevalent idea. Um, it's not a Christian idea, but because there's some similarities to you reap what you sow and verses like that, we, we embrace it a little too much. And we start to think about our relationship with God in karma sort of terms where the way we justify ourselves before God is we, we do enough good things. We, we're nice enough. Well, we know, well, you know, I've done some bad stuff. Yeah, but I mean, look at my life. I've, I've given to my church. I, I read my Bible. I take care of my neighbor. If, if a guy's on the side of the road needing help, I'll, I'll pull over and give him a lift. Or I justify all the reasons I didn't give him a lift because there's some reason. I, you know what I'm saying? We just have this built-in tendency to seek justification in everything. We want to be right. We want to be in the right. We want everyone to know we're in the right when we do something. So justification is a basic human desire. That's the first thing in your outline. Justification is a basic human desire. So with that being said, Paul recognizes this. We're going to dive into Romans chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 1, where we are diving into the middle of an argument that he is making, but we'll see how it connects to the idea of justification right as we dive in. So Romans chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Now, he's jumping into the middle of an argument. Here's what he did in chapter 1. He says, all these people are sinners, they've denied God, and he's listing all these things they do wrong, except he's listing sins that, by and large, Jews wouldn't commit. 
That makes sense. Like, I could list a bunch of sins and get everybody to applaud, and yeah, man, those people deserve to go to hell. And I just keep listing sins that are unlikely for our cultural demographic to commit. Then what happens to you as I list the sins you're not committing? That kind of puffs you up a little bit. You know? Hey, yeah, you're right. Those people, those people. I start talking about, especially when we get into politics, that'd be easy to do. Let's talk about everything they do, and then we would rise up. Oh, man, amen. Yeah, preach it, brother. Preach it. But then we get to Romans chapter 2 where Paul flips it, and instead of talking about the Gentiles, he points his finger at the Jews and essentially says, but you're no better. If you've acknowledged that they've done something wrong, you've acknowledged that there's a standard that you didn't come up with. The standard is one God came up with, and you don't meet it either. So he spends chapter 2 saying, being Jewish, being God's people didn't help you at all. And then chapter 3 starts off by saying, well, is there any advantage to being Jewish then? In their culture, 2,000 years ago, he says, well, much in every way. Yeah, there's an advantage to being a Jew, but follow where he goes with this. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So from a Jewish perspective, where did the Old Testament come from? From the Jewish people. It came to the Jews through, through the Holy Spirit, but to the Jews. So there's, there's a pride in that. But what if some were unfaithful? So the scriptures came to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. If you've read your Old Testament, how often are God's people faithful? Right? It's, it's very similar to our culture, right? They, they get it wrong. Now, sometimes, and every now and then, there's, there's a hero in the story. A lot of times, you know, the hero still has horrible sin in their life, things that are broken. The Bible doesn't have a very high view of, of the character of man, but there are some, some good people. But by and large, there's a lot of unfaithfulness in the Old Testament. So what if they were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, or sorry, faithlessness, nullify the faithfulness of God. So God's it's saying like this, Paul's saying, so God took this people, and he's using them in the Old Testament, yet they're always unfaithful. Does that make God look bad? I mean, he's like, he's always picking people who can't seem to do the job well. He, he gets Adam and Eve in the garden, they eat the fruit. He gets Noah, he gets drunk when he gets off the boat. He gets Abraham, and of course, the Abraham and Sarah thing. We, we get really excited about Abraham having faith, but it took him years to do that right, it was really kind of pathetic. We look at Moses. Moses, go preach and, and tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And Moses says, no, I don't want to do that. Even later, he gets mad and curses the rock and doesn't even get to go into the promised land. We just go through all these biblical, not David, right? King David, the Old Testament, man after God's own heart. God keeps picking these people. They keep messing up. Does that make God look bad? That's Paul's question. So verse 4. By no means, not, no, in other words, no, that doesn't look God, make God look bad. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, though you may, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, you might have missed it if you didn't see it in there. He just answered the question. Why does it not make God look bad when his people do wrong? It's because when people do wrong, it actually makes God look good. We've talked about this in other contexts. When you do something wrong, does that make you look like God or does that show the dissimilarity between you and God? The more you sin, the more clearly God is in a more righteous position than you. So the worse we are, the better God looks. Now, you probably just had the same thought that Paul is expecting you to have. Well, and if that's the case, why don't we just... Let's just keep being unfaithful, right? We want God to get glory, right? That is a valid means of making God look good 
is by being the sinner. Hey, let's just be really good sinners, and then that way God gets lots of glory. Now, let me tell you, your plan will work. God will get glory if you follow this plan. But what happens to you? I'm just going to sin all I want. That way God looks really good compared to me. One of the ways he manifests that goodness is by pouring out. It's usually in the Old Testament's form of a cup. There's wine in the cup, and he pours out the cup. He makes people drink the cup. And what's usually that cup a reference to? The wrath of God. So he's going to manifest his glory by pouring out wrath on you. Choose that option if you want. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess eventually. You'll, you'll get to manifest God's glory that way. So look, what he, that's exactly what he's thinking, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So our unrighteousness makes the righteousness of God look good. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. He, obviously, that's a dumb answer. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are the Jews any better off? Well, when it comes to salvation, the answer is no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. So if we just followed that list, how many people have earned their righteousness before God based on this text? A big zero. Jesus, of course, is the obvious exception to this rule, but we talk about that internal desire for justification. The Bible's universal answer to this is you fail. You cannot, will not, ever stand before God in any sort of boastful, prideful way, I did it right, I'm in the right. It's not an option for you. We cannot, is your next blank, we cannot justify ourselves before God. This is not an option. Now, really, every branch of Christianity knows this. There's not any branch of Christianity that would deny this. It's how we go from that position to justified, which is where most of the debate takes place. So let's we, we see sin, we see wrath, and we know what God is going to do with that wrath. In the, have you read the book of Revelation? What's happening with God's wrath in the book of Revelation? And he is pouring it out. It's coming. And that phrase, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, is a reference to judgment day. That's the point. Now, every knee will do this. Now, some knees will have already been doing it, and they're not forced to do it on that day. How do you get there. That's really the question we're asking. So let's jump down to verse 21 and let's continue working through the progression. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So we read this last week, emphasizing the grace. Now we're going to emphasize the content. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So God's righteousness is going to show up in some specific way. The righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So God's going to make us righteous through faith. Now, he's going to unpack how that works. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, my favorite word, right? 
Propitiation. Propitiation. I love this word. I know most of you have heard this word explained a thousand times, but for the sake of doing it again, making it work in our brains, and anyone who hasn't heard a good definition of propitiation, let's walk through it one more time. We propitiate all the time. We don't use this word. I have never, ever seen anyone use this word outside of a religious context. It's just not an American idea. Rewind the clock 2,000 years ago, every Greek-speaking person on the planet knew this word. It was part of their daily vocabulary. It was part of their daily experience. Now, we have a similar idea. It's just not as significant. So if me and my wife have a fight, you and your wife have a fight, there's a tendency. We think that if we buy something on the way home and we take it to them, that we can somehow make the anger go away. Man, have you ever tried this? You know you have. You have definitely tried this. For me, you know, I always joke for my wife, I better not bring home roses that have been cut off of their roots. They better still be attached so she can plant them. Or bring home a baby goat. You know, you've met my wife. You know what I'm talking about. All right, so you know your wife you know your, or your husband, whatever it is. There's something you do, and you're hoping that when you come home with this, they were mad at you, but I show up with this little cute baby goat, and, you know, I did something stupid. I'm trying to get justification in some way, but I know I was wrong, and there's really no way I can argue myself to justification. So I bring home the baby goat instead, hoping that when my angry wife sees the baby goat, when I get done with it, she's going to ask me where the baby goat is. It's like I'm setting myself up to buy another goat. I just realized that. Okay, anyway, I'll go find a goat later. All right, but I'm going to bring this baby goat home, and my angry wife looks at the baby goat. What am I hoping happens? What happens to the anger? Where does it go? Just somehow that goat removes the anger. You know this, right? If someone was really mad at you and they offered the thing you want, I mean, you've had this experience. You've, you've been propitiated yourself. You know, something just takes that anger and removes it. And all of a sudden, you know what? <laughs> You're right. It's not that big a deal. Uh, I'm happy. You've been propitiated. In the hopes, if I bring the baby goat home, I propitiate my wife. Well, what sacrifice could we possibly make that would propitiate an angry God? You think about it, in the Greek culture, this is the question they're asking every single day of their lives. They get up and the weather's bad. A storm came out and ruined their crops. They assume what went wrong. God's mad, one of them. So we've got to make a sacrifice. You've seen the movie Crash of the Titans. It's based on the same idea, propitiation. The girl has to be sacrificed to the Kraken because of the angry gods. That's propitiation. That's how they use that word. Paul takes that word, applies it to a biblical concept, except the difference is there's nothing you can offer period. It's going to propitiate God's wrath. You can't stand before him and say, oh, look at this thing I made. Oh, look at this thing I did. Or look, I I quit doing it. I'm going to try harder. I won't do it wrong this time. None of those things can save you. That's not how it works. What is the propitiation in Christianity? Jesus himself is. Jesus himself, whom God put forward, God propitiates his own wrath. He didn't even ask you to do it because you couldn't. He does it himself. God provides the means of justification by the sacrifice of his sons. Third third blank. God provides the means of justification by the sacrifice of his son. So that's how we can be justified. Now let's real quickly read through the next couple paragraphs so we can see what we're going to move towards is how do we participate in that. So let's jump down to verse 28. For we hold that no one, or sorry, we hold that one is justified by 
faith apart from the works of the law. We know how someone is justified. That is the blood of Christ propitiates the wrath of God for them. Another way Paul words it in, in Colossians is you had a certificate of debt, a list of every sin you had ever done wrong. Think about it like that. And Jesus nails it to the tree. Except he's not nailing a piece of paper to a tree. What gets nailed to the tree? Jesus' own body, his own person, goes to the cross taking your sin. He is the propitiation. That's the means. That's how anyone is saved. So technically, faith doesn't save. It's that work of propitiation that saves. The question is, how do we participate in that? How do we get that? How do I become one of the people whose sin is forgiven? How do I get justified? Now, the Bible gives us an answer to that, and it is this. For we hold that one is justified by faith. This is how you get to be part of it. The only way we can be saved is to be justified by God. That's the fourth one. And then leading into the next one, is justification conditional? We see the answer in there. Is there a condition in order for you to be justified? Yes. 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 Conditional justification is basic Christian doctrine. What's the condition? Faith. It's that easy. The condition is faith. Jump down to chapter 4 of Romans. Let's just see the first couple of verses. So Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know Abraham's story? Abraham believed a specific promise God had made. And the promise was that he would have a what? Do you remember? An heir. He would have a son. He's old. He's past the point of having children. So is his wife. But the promise is made. You have an heir. Not just any heir, but an heir through your wife who has had no children. You're going to have an heir through her. And Abraham, now if you go back and read the story, Abraham's faith on the scale of mustard seed to mustard tree, looks more like mustard seed, right? Because he, he just doesn't do a good job with this, but it's, it is mustard seed level. It exists. It's mustard seed level. And God looks at him and says, I'll count that as righteousness. So even in the Old Testament, how do people get saved? How do people get justified before God? It's faith. They believed God. They, they did the thing that God asked them to do. They trusted in God to do the thing God said he would do. So the point of sola fide is that there is only one specific condition, and that's faith, and specifically not works. So justification is conditioned upon faith. So can you be justified without faith? No, that's not how it works. Justification is conditioned upon faith. So, here's what we really need to do as we work towards a conclusion. We need to really define what it means, then, to put faith in Jesus. Because we have some interesting notions about what that means culturally. The word faith in our culture means to believe something that's probably not true. 
Isn't that kind of how the word is used? Like, well, I have faith that such and such isn't going to happen. And, or I, really we're saying maybe I hope that's what happens. Or in terms of faith, we typically, when we're talking about belief in God, we use the word faith when we have no reason to believe it whatsoever. And so, but I believe it anyway, without any reason at all, I call that kind of belief faith. Right? That's the idea. It's not a biblical faith at all. Biblical faith doesn't believe something without cause. It trusts someone specific to do something specific. So I'll give you a hypothetical scenario. Stranger walks up to me on the street and says, hey man, tomorrow is payday. You've had this conversation before, haven't you? And I'm going to get paid tomorrow, man. I got my job. Uh, I'm not a juggie, I promise. Anytime someone says that in the initial conversation, they're probably not getting money from me. So, but anyway, they, they come up, make this statement. I promise you, give me $100. I promise you, tomorrow, I'll, I'll pay you back. All right, you've been in this scenario? Did you ever, do you ever get the money back in that scenario? Chances are you don't give it. And if you do give it, do you actually think you're getting it back tomorrow? Now, so how much faith do you have in this person? Zero. Zero faith. Let's change the story there. Instead of some stranger, now the person that comes up and asks, same, same similar scenario, but now it's one of your best friends. You've known them your whole life. And maybe they went through some situation. They, they are tied on money. They do have a job. And they've borrowed money from you before. And even though you didn't even make them pay it back, but, but they just out of honor, six or seven times this person's borrowed money from you and they've paid back every penny, every time, at the time and place they said they were going to do it. And so this person comes up to you and says, hey, man, i got a situation again. I'm doing what I can. I, I just, I'm short $100. Can you, can you front me $100? bucks? i will get paid tomorrow. I'll pay you back immediately. What's the likelihood in that scenario that you give the person the money? Well, it's very high. So do you say you have more faith in the second scenario? Right? So faith isn't connected to what you don't know. Faith is connected to what you do know. We know this is basic operation of the word faith. In fact, if we read the Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, every one of those scenarios isn't showing us that these characters had no reason to trust God. It's showing us that because of all the reasons they had to trust God, they actually did trust God. So here's step one to how this works. Saving faith is not believing God exists. I'm sorry. That's, that doesn't even register on the scale when it comes to faith. James deals with this exact scenario in his letter. It says the demons, they have that level of faith. Do the demons believe God exists? Do they believe our God exists? Do they believe Jesus died on the cross? As, in fact, in English, we use the word believe in a certain sort of way. Um, we wouldn't really say they believe those things. What word would we use instead? They know them. They know better than you do, really, that those things indeed have taken place. I love the story when Paul is, is working in Ephesus and he's getting so famous that these seven Jewish exorcists show up to exorcise a demon, and they cast out the demon in the name of Jesus, who Paul proclaims. And I love how the demons are like, oh, we know who Jesus is. And we, we've heard of Paul, and we don't know who you are. So demons don't have, you know, omniscience. They don't know everything. 
But one thing they certainly did know in that scenario was what? They knew Jesus was Lord. Every time we see a demon show up in the New Testament and Jesus is doing ministry, Jesus commands the demon to do something, and what's the demon do? It obeys perfectly, 100%. And they even shrink in fear. So if our definition of faith is just acknowledging some objective truth, then you don't have as much faith as a demon does. But does a demon have saving faith? That's not what we're talking about. We say faith. Justification by faith has nothing to do with believing God exists. That's assumed. You've you got to bring that to the table. That, that's a given. That's, of course, you have to believe that Jesus exists, that Jesus literally died on the cross, that he literally rose from the dead. Those are given. You have to believe that to even have the conversation about what it means to have trust in him. So it's not objective belief in a truth. It is specific belief in a person to do a specific work. What's the specific work you're trusting God to do in you? To save you from your sin, resurrection's part of it, to raise you from the dead now spiritually and eventually physically. You are trusting God to do that, and trust looks an awful lot like obedience. Think about what we are supposed to do. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, doesn't use the word Christ there, doesn't say Jesus there, of course it's it's who we're talking about, but why use the word Lord? What are we saying there? Anyone who calls on the name of a new master will be saved. So saving faith acknowledges that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead that He conquered sin, that He conquers death, that He will ultimately conquer physical death. This is part of it. Yes, you have to believe those things, but it's saying, because I believe those things, I will take up my cross and follow. I trust Him enough to obey. It's very interesting. You read the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, every one of them who is commended for their faith is actually commended for something they did. Not for some objective knowledge that they sat back and, oh, well, I believe this to be true. But do you believe it in a way that leads you to obey God as your Lord? That is what saving faith is. So we put our faith in Jesus by trusting Him alone for the for salvation before God. So... How do we get saved? Just to wrap this up. It's not by believing in God. Here's, there's a progression of things that happen. And we can get into fancy doctrine. We can talk about the ordo salutis, I think is the fancy Latin term. But there's a progression of things. Number one is God wakes you up. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And just like Lazarus in the tomb, Jesus shows up and says, Lazarus, come out. And what did Lazarus do when Jesus said that? He came out. All right, we could get into, well, did he have free will? Dude, he woke up. He wanted to come out. Like, there's, like, why are we even having that conversation? He woke him up from the dead, 
and he came out, regeneration, born again. That's what happens. You hear the gospel preached. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. No one gets saved apart from the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you hear that gospel. And just like Cornelius and his friends on the day he was saved in Acts chapter 10, Peter starts preaching the gospel. And they didn't have a hymn of invocation. They didn't sign any kind of paper at the end. They didn't jump through any hoops while they were hearing something stirred in their hearts. And we call that being born again. Their eyes were opened in the first action of that open heart, open mind, made alive spirit was to say, yes, I want that. I like that. I want Jesus. It's like in John chapter 6 when Jesus is preaching and he says those hard words and people start to run away and Jesus turns to the disciples and say, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? His eyes had been opened. He had seen Jesus and said, yes, that's the faith part, that's conversion. I want him. And it happens in the sequence. You're born again, you faith, and you are justified. In that order, it's very significant theologically. So if you're banking your salvation on the fact that you grew up in church and you objectively believe these truths, I've got no guarantee that this has happened you hear the gospel and you look at Jesus Christ and say, that, that is my Savior. I'm in. Whatever he calls me to do, I trust him. Think about the story of Job. We've been doing that on Wednesday nights. That's exactly what happened with Job. The Lord, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, God does things good to me. Then I go through these hard times. Job says, I trust him either way. And that scenario progresses. But that's the idea here. Not some objective acknowledgement that God has done this work, but a genuine trust in Jesus to do this work. So as we move towards a conclusion this morning, just thinking about how faith works, I just want to make three kind of closing things about faith. Number one, faith always produces results. So that James would say in his gospel, faith without works is what? You know the statement. It's dead. That doesn't make any sense. That's like saying you have a dead tree that's growing. No. <laughs> if the tree is alive, it's growing. If you have faith, you're going to produce fruit. This is Guaranteed. Second, faith is how we walk forward. There's a tendency for us to feel like saving faith, that's the thing that got me in, and then we, we kind of put that to the side and we work on the other areas of our life. That's not how faith works. Faith is how we live and breathe. Faith is how we trust God, no matter what the circumstances. And have you ever been in a scenario that was hard, been a scenario you didn't know how you were going to go forward, you just trusted God for the outcome? You don't get through those scenarios without faith. That's what it's about. I'm trusting God with what he's doing. And then this is what Hebrews 11 is all about. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. Actually, what we're saying there is when you faith God, and the people who don't see God, whose eyes aren't opened, they look at you, and what are they seeing happen? They see the movement of God in your life. So the more we trust God, the more 
the unseen things of the universe become real to the people who are watching. So I don't know where you're at this morning. There's many of you who may need to trust in God for the first time. But I feel like a lot of us, we've done that before. And what we are more concerned about is what do we do with this faith thing when we sin? So I'm going to end with this one thing from 1 John chapter 2. I love how John says this. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you in order that you might not sin. He didn't want them to sin. But when you do, he knows what's going to happen. He knows you. He knows himself. We're all going to sin. And I love the first thing he tells them. He doesn't tell them to repent. He doesn't tell them to confess. He doesn't tell them to run to the church and get absolution. He doesn't tell them to jump through these hoops. He doesn't tell them to read the Bible. He doesn't tell them to pray. He says, but when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is our propitiation. When you sin, the first thought that should pop into your mind is the atoning work of Christ. And if that's how we do our justification, we're doing it right. Because it's not about how well I repented. It's not about how well I did anything. It's about Jesus doing all the work and me trusting him with it.